Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Welcome back. I'm Jocelyn Mesa Miranda. It's Friday, September 23rd. The parents of a young man shot and killed by police in Clear Creek County in June are demanding answers and accountability. Boulder resident Christian Glass, a 22-year-old white man, died near Silver Plume after calling 911 when his car got stuck on the side of the road. A warning for listeners, this story contains descriptions of violence and audio that may be disturbing. KUNC reporter Lee Patterson spoke with KUNC host Bill Baker about the latest developments. Lee, first, what do we know about what happened that night? Well, Glass had called 911 after somehow getting his car stuck on the side of the road in the Silver Plume area. He had been on a rock hunting trip that night. And during this call, he sounded paranoid. He was saying that something called a skinwalker, skinwalkers were after him. When the dispatcher asked him about weapons, he did say yes. He had two knives and a rubber mallet in his car. Um, Later on, Glass's mom said that these were just rock tools, not actual weapons. Earlier this week, body cam video did come out, so we have a clearer idea of what happened next during this incident. It lasts just over an hour and starts when two deputies from the Clear Creek County Sheriff's Office arrive. Step out of the car now. That's a lawful order. Step out of the car. You'll be removed from the vehicle. Step out now. You don't need to be terrified. We're out here to try and help you and have a conversation, okay? You crashed your car. So the first responders spend most of the time here just trying to persuade Glass to get out of his car. They offer him soda. They ask him to take deep breaths. And Glass has his hands on the steering wheel for much of this time. He's sitting pretty quietly, but he's not opening the door. In the video, you can hear the cops talking back and forth, saying he probably has a psychiatric issue and that he has a knife. Glass did ask deputies if he could throw those knives out the car window. They said no. So eventually, after an hour of this, police break his window to get him out. At this point, there are multiple officers on the scene, and the last two minutes of this body cam video are just complete chaos. Watch crossfire, watch crossfire. Trooper on me, on me, on me. In the video, you can see Glass is sitting in his car. He's now holding a knife. Police shoot beanbag rounds at him. They tase him. There's just a lot of like screaming and shouting. At one point, Glass twists around in his seat, and he's thrusting his knife towards the back window of the car. But he's still inside with the doors closed, and then a deputy shoots him six times. Lee, how is the Clear Creek Sheriff's Office talking about this incident? They declined to comment on the incident, but a few hours after Glass was killed, the undersheriff put out a press release saying that Glass had immediately become argumentative and that he had eventually tried to stab an officer, but the release fails to note that Glass was in his car this whole time. During a recent press conference, um, Glass's mother, Sally, held one of her son's heart-shaped stones to her chest. She was clasping it while she talked, and she wants the deputy to be prosecuted. 
They should be protecting us, not attacking us. The police need to know if they act criminally, they will face charges and punishment just like the rest of us. The press conference was at the family's lawyer's office in Denver, and this is the same legal team who's represented Elijah McLean's mom. You know, that's the young man from Aurora who died after EMTs injected him with ketamine. They've also represented Kyle Vinson, um, a man who was assaulted by police in Aurora. One of the family's lawyers, Qusair Mohammed Bai, has represented several Coloradans who have been harmed by police. You know, I've been doing this almost 20 years. Seen some of the worst things that have ever come through this state. I have never seen this level of poor policing. The decision making here, it's, we could spend hours talking and discussing everything they did wrong and everything that they could have done. Lee, you mentioned that Glass sounded paranoid when he called 911. Was he in some sort of mental health crisis? You know, we're not really sure. His mom said she believes her son was having some sort of mental health episode. He had recently been diagnosed with ADHD and also suffered from depression. And we know that police on the scene thought he was having some sort of psychiatric issue. The autopsy report found that Glass had some THC in his blood and a very small amount of alcohol. So we don't know what type of crisis he was in exactly, but we do know that law enforcement deals with a huge volume of mental health calls generally. Police often have some training in crisis intervention or de-escalation, but this is not their specialty, dealing with mental health crises. According to a database compiled by the Washington Post, the Fatal Force Database, 20% of people that have been shot and killed since 2015 by police have had an identified mental illness. So this does happen with some regularity. Lee, co-responder programs which pair mental health clinicians with law enforcement are meant to address this issue of cops being dispatched into mental health situations. Were co-responders called the night Christian Glass was killed? No, co-responders weren't there that night. Uh, The Clear Creek Sheriff's Office doesn't have a co-responder program, but as one of the lawyers noted during the family's press conference Co-responders from Boulder County or Jefferson County could have been called in that night and were not. The state funds co-responder programs in at least 44 communities. Some cities actually take this type of response one step further. Denver and Aurora, for example, both have non-police response programs where clinicians and EMTs together are dispatched to low-level 911 emergencies with no police presence. Where does the shooting death of Christian Glass go from here, Lee? Well, we don't know if any of the officers will be prosecuted. The district attorney is investigating the incident. It's required when an officer kills someone in Colorado that the DA's office determine if the use of force was lawful or not. And the Colorado Bureau of Investigation is looking into the incident as well. KUNC's Lee Patterson providing the latest on this story. Lee, thanks for your time today. You're welcome. Few things are more valuable to a farmer in the West than water. And when there's not enough to go around, figuring out whose use matters the most can lead to heated arguments. In rural Nevada, a shrinking aquifer forced one ranching community to grapple with water scarcity in a real way. The Mountain West News Bureau's Caleb Radal has more on what they decided to do. It's a hot summer morning in Diamond Valley, Nevada. 
and hay farmer Marty Plaskett is standing next to an irrigation pivot, a large rotating sprinkler system that's watering his green alfalfa field. This water here is spraying mainly in the crop canopy, so it's, it's spraying directly to the ground. These low elevation sprinklers reduce his water use and waste. For years, Plaskett used elevated sprinklers that sprayed more plants at once. Sometimes colorful rainbows would show up in the mist, a sight Plaskett used to enjoy. He can't anymore. Now it makes me sick to my stomach because any, any water that's leaving by evaporation, it's going up in the air. So, I mean, it's, it's the worst thing to see water drifting anymore. To Plaskett, any water that's evaporated is wasted. And this valley can't afford to waste any water. For decades, state officials let farmers overpump the aquifer in Diamond Valley. It's caused groundwater levels to drop by an average of two feet every year. And without water, your land value is zero. You have no livelihood. See you later. So that wasn't an option for us. Faced with that threat, farmers got together in an attempt to shoulder the burden together. They were able to do that because the state declared Diamond Valley a critical management area, Nevada's only basin with that designation. They had 10 years to put together a groundwater management plan. If they didn't succeed, the state could turn off at least half of the farmers' wells. The oldest rights would be protected, the newer ones were vulnerable. Jake Tibbetts oversees the county's Natural Resources Department. He says doing nothing wasn't an option. We're taking water out um, much quicker than it's being replenished by Mother Nature. So that becomes the big issue here is it's, it's something that we can't continue on that path forever. So Tibbetts helped develop a plan that was approved by most of the Valley's water users and later greenlit by the state. It required all irrigators to reduce their use, spreading cuts over time. That's a drastic change from how most water law functions in the West says Philip Womble with the Woods Institute for the Environment at Stanford University. This is the only place where a groundwater system that is only implementing that priority-based water rights system has transitioned to a different allocation scheme that shares shortage. But not everyone is in favor of sharing shortages, especially those farmers with senior rights. They sued to keep the groundwater plan from moving forward. One plaintiff was Sadler Ranch, a cattle operation with some of the oldest water rights in the region. Ranch manager Levi Shoda says those rights shouldn't be messed with. He's not against a groundwater management system, but he sees the approved plan as a loss, not only in the value of the ranch, but also in the way of doing things. We see water rights as a private property right, and when you start taking private property rights and giving them to some, like, reallocating them to somebody else, I think you're crossing a line. Despite legal challenges from Sadler Ranch and two others, the Nevada Supreme Court upheld the contested plan in a 4-3 ruling this June. The ranch's request for a rehearing was denied late this summer. Without any more legal barriers, the new plan is on track to be implemented next irrigation season, starting in the spring of next year. Back on the hay farm, Plaskett says he knows there's no guarantee that this plan will work, but they had to try something to protect their futures, even if it means everyone is getting less water. It's just the need to have the long-term vision. I mean, it's not about me. It's about our kids or whoever comes next.
He adds that this plan is unique and might not apply in other regions of the West dealing with water issues. In other words, the ripple effects coming from Diamond Valley may be small, at least for now. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Caleb Bradle. This story is part of ongoing coverage of water in the West, produced by the Mountain West News Bureau and supported by the Walton Family Foundation. We caught up with colleagues at the Colorado Sun this week to find out what stories are crossing the reporting desks. Sun editor Larry Rickman joined KUNC's Bo Baker to talk through some of the news they're following. Let's start with a story on a state prison work program. The Take Two program gave low-risk inmates a chance to work outside prisons, but it was effectively shut down this summer after an inmate in the program escaped. Now businesses that were participating in the program are in a tight spot. Larry, what can you tell us about this? Yeah, this is a real gut punch to businesses that have already been struggling to find workers. Reporter Shannon Najmabadi says some employers had built their business plans around the labor force that this program made available over the past three years. The program had allowed low-risk inmates to work outside prison shortly before their release. But employers say they were given no time to warn customers to revise work schedules before Take-Two was curtailed. That cost some businesses thousands of dollars in canceled orders and reduced hours. Now some are partially blaming politics, saying there are increased concerns about public safety during an election year. Take-Two aims to reduce the number of repeat offenders, save the state money on incarceration, and prepare inmates for reentry into society up to 20% of each inmate's salary went to paying for restitution, child support, and other court fees. Since the program began, it generated more than $270,000 in restitution and court fees. Prison officials say the program is on a pause while they reevaluate it and address some of their own staffing issues. We'll definitely keep an eye on this one. Moving on, Christian Glass was shot and killed by police in Clear Creek County in June. Recent body cam footage and details of the incident have raised questions about why there aren't more mental health responders involved in police calls. What did the Sun's reporters find while looking into these types of resources around the state? Sun reporters Olivia Prinsel and Jennifer Brown found that more than half of Colorado counties lack a co-responder program in which a mental health professional joins law enforcement on police calls. That includes Clear Creek County, where officers shot the 22-year-old man as he sat in his car. Co-responder programs try to de-escalate encounters with police and reduce the number of people who need mental health treatment, but instead often are sent to jail. Teams funded by the Behavioral Health Administration responded to nearly 26,000 calls from July 2020 to June 2021, and 98% of the time, there was no arrest. Colorado's boosted efforts in recent years and provided funding to expand programs across the state. The program's $7 million budget is funded through taxes on marijuana sales as well as federal mental health aid. Yet today, only 24 of Colorado's 64 counties have a co-responder program. Some of these rural counties say they don't have enough mental health issues to justify the expense of co-responder programs. And finally today, Larry, air quality. Colorado just got dinged by the Environmental Protection Agency for violations on the front range. And Sun reporter Michael Booth looked deeper into the state goals on cutting greenhouse gas emissions. What did Michael find? So state officials just released a new report that shows Colorado has fallen alarmingly behind goals to cut greenhouse gas emissions for 2025 and 2030. 
That's prompting clean air advocates to renew calls for more aggressive action on consumer and business driving habits and a shift to more transit spending. Projected gap is widest in transportation. State estimates put 2025 carbon dioxide emissions essentially unchanged from current levels if stronger new policies are not added. State air pollution control officials say Colorado needs to cut 10 million tons of annual carbon emissions from transportation to meet goals of 26% cuts from 2005 levels by 2025. Colorado has been praised for scheduling aggressive closures of coal-fired power plants, but critics now say those closures might not uh, might need to be sped up even further to, to help meet greenhouse gas goals. Colorado's transportation sector is now nearly equal to power generation in its contribution to the state's greenhouse gas emissions. I was going to say, reading Michael's reporting, we're, we're, we're behind on the first goal at 2025. It, it seems like the 2030 goal to cut emissions by half, that's a bit of, bit of a long shot right now. Yeah, it feels pretty aggressive right now. And, again, every day that goes by that we you know, aren't catching up makes it even harder to do so down the road. Larry, thank you for chatting with us today. We'll circle back next week to talk more. That's all for today on Colorado Edition. Thanks for listening. You can catch the Colorado Edition podcast every Friday. Just hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If there's a story you'd like to hear, send us an email at coloradoedition at kunc.org. Our theme music is composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Other music in the show by Burat Sessions. I'm Jocelyn Mesa Miranda. Have a great weekend.